And this morning, we're continuing our series titled Skeptics Welcome. And even if you're not a skeptic, even if you have never thought about these questions, if you are totally secure in everything you think and you have no doubts or no skepticism regarding who God is, the reality is you have a neighbor that is skeptical. You have a friend who does doubt. You have a family member who does think that all of these issues are problematic and they question everything that they've ever been taught or everything that they've ever thought about God. And so this is a really important series, not just for you, but all the people, hopefully, that you know. And so hopefully we're going to be wrestling with all of these topics, and we're going to be, you know, even if, again, you're not a skeptic or, or questioning things, you'll, you'll get some hopeful and helpful advice on how to communicate these issues with those people who are. Now, if you were with us last week on Easter morning, I made the claim last week that God, in fact, does care for you, and that God does, in fact, love you. And the resurrection actually proves this. And some of you are thinking, that just can't be true. Because if you could step inside to my life for just a minute, if you could look at my experience, if you could see all the horror that I have had to endure throughout my life, there's no way that there is a loving God in this world. No, there are a lot of justifiable questions in the face of pain. If God is all good and all powerful, then why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? Why is the world going through what the world is going through? And this is the great hang-up for so many people in regards to accepting this God of love. This is why so many people keep God at arm's length. This is why so many people just choose to reject the whole idea that there is a good and loving God in the universe. Because why would I then be experiencing the pain that I am experiencing? For a lot of people, this is the great obstacle to faith. This is the reason that they remain agnostic. This is the reason that they remain an atheist. This is the reason that they have rejected God and kept him at arm's length. This is the reason that they left church I just can't believe that there would be a God who inflicts so much cruelty on the world, who would be so compassionless that in the face of all of our suffering, that if he were all-powerful and he were all-good, he would just let us remain in the state that we are in. Now, this question has been around for thousands and thousands of years. We're not the first person or the first generation in the history of the planet to think, wow, okay, let's try to, let's try to figure this thing out, right? Thousands and thousands of years, philosophers and theologians have wrestled with this question, and they have coined it the theodicy question. There was an atheist in the 18th century named David Hume who wrestled with this question. It was, in fact, the very reason that he determined to be atheist. Here were the, here's the line of argument that he made. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Well, then he is impotent. He, he must not be all-powerful. He's not the all-powerful God that we think he is. Well, is he able but not willing? Well, then he is malevolent. Maybe he is not a good God after all. Maybe he doesn't actually care about you. Maybe he's an evil God. I see both able and willing. Why then is there evil? And that is the question. It's an interesting question. It's an intellectual question. But I think the more important question is the personal question because it's not just academic, right? It's not just intellectual. It is a heart issue. It's a personal issue. It's not just a theological issue. The reason that you're interested in this question is because it's a personal issue. Most people don't even, you know, think about God's goodness when life is good. When, when we're standing in the light and the sun is shining and then the world is going great, we don't even consider God's goodness. God must be good because my life is good. We equate what's happening with our life with who God is. It's when life is bad. It's when life is hard. It's when there's pain, when there is suffering that we begin to think, is there a good God after all? Is there a God who actually cares for me in my pain? Maybe for you... It goes all the way back to when you were a kid. 
And you have a really hard time calling God Father because you look at your own fatherly experience and he was abusive and he was just a drunk. And you have a lot of painful memories of, of your own father and so you have a hard time calling God Father. Maybe some of you wish you had a father, but your father died at an early age and you just, that is the thing that you just can't forgive God for. And you, you, you rest all of your anxiety and all of your, your hurt on that one issue and you just can't forgive God for it. You wonder where God is in the midst of all that. For some of you, your life has just been a series of losses, job losses and academic losses and love loss, or you loved her, but she didn't love you. You tried marriage, but it didn't work out. And so you look at your life full of disappointment, and you wonder if God even cares for you. Because certainly if there was a loving God who actually cared for me, then certainly I wouldn't have to endure all of this pain. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost spouses. Some of you have lived through war. I remember when I was a pastor in Minnesota, I was a college pastor at a university, and a girl came into my office one day, and her dad had just died. And that was, that was hard enough, but then she goes on to tell me how every memory that she ever had of her father was only the times when he raped her and abused her. And the amount of pain that was in her eyes just broke my heart and shattered it to pieces. It's not just a theological issue. It's rarely a theological issue, in fact. It's often, almost always, a very personal issue. In the midst of all this, we have to ask the question, why God? Why? If you really care for me, why would I be going through this? If you really love me, God, why would this be happening? Are you just incapable, God, or is it just that you don't care? See, what is true of most of us is that our personal pain motivates our private convictions. Often it's what happened to you that makes you say that you can't believe in God. It's that personal issue, not the theological. It's what has happened to you. And so this morning, I just want you to be honest. I want you to mine the depths of your heart and be honest. You know, maybe it's heartbreak after heartbreak or tragedy after tragedy, or maybe you just look at the world and you think, really? Really? It's the ripping apart of the life that we hope to have that motivates our private convictions about who God is. And so when people ask me, is there a good God? My immediate response is, why do you ask? Because rarely is this line of thinking generated by some theological conversation. Oftentimes it is motivated and generated by personal experience. And that's a whole different type of questioning, and that's a whole different type of answers, and that's a whole different type of conversation that we need to have with people. Most people are looking for an emotional answer, not only a theological answer, something that will stop the pain, something that will take the hurt away. See, it's not just in the head. We can get the theology, right? The, the philosophy, the theology, that's, that's relatively easy to wrestle with. It's the heart. It's the heart that presents this whole thing as such a great challenge. So this morning, we're going to try to tackle this whole thing. In the next 30 minutes or so, it's a really, really big conversation. I'm not going to address every single angle or every single issue that arises out of this conversation, but over the next 30 minutes, hopefully we can come up with some helpful solutions. But the first thing you need to know is that at the source of both the intellectual and the emotional answer to the problem of evil and suffering is that God loves you. Now, some of you probably think that's really trite. You're like, really? Really, Ross? I did not come here today. I did not... I did not come here today to get some, you know, simplistic, pat answer to a really, really challenging problem. 
I, I didn't come here today looking for a pat on the back in the midst of my misery, in the midst of my suffering, hoping that you were just going to rub my back and say it's going to be all right. That's not what I came here for. I didn't come here to get a Sunday school answer to this really, really challenging problem. I didn't come here today to get some contradictory response to this issue. And so don't bother me with nonsense that God loves me and that that's the solution to all of it because you know what, if, if God really loved me, then why am I going through what I'm going through? And I can sympathize with that. I really can, even though I do believe that it's sorely misguided. See, the first thing you need to know as we address this very, very complex issue is that evil and suffering comes from the paradox free will creates. Now, the best way to understand this is to think of your relationships. I'm married to a beautiful woman named Emily, and Emily, I believe, has chosen to love me, and it is that choice that she has made that makes our relationship so beautiful. I, I, you, guys, you guys may not know this, but I didn't actually insert a quarter into her ear this morning that would program her to love me as a forced effort on her part this morning. It's not something I do every morning is pro- reprogram her to, to choose to love me because she is not a robot. She is an individual with a human free will that chooses to love me, and it is the choice that she has made to love me which makes our relationship beautiful. Have you ever, non- have you ever, have you ever noticed, though, that love only works when there is freedom? How many of you have kids? Okay, a lot of us, right? So how many of you, when your kids are are squabbling at each other and fighting at each other, you say, hey, go say you're sorry to your sister. In the midst of their fighting, you say, go say you're sorry. And what do they do? They stomp on over. Sorry. (laughs) And they stomp on back, right? Isn't that how it happens every single time? You try to force love. You try to force reconciliation. Does it work? Why doesn't it work? It's because love requires a choice. Love requires that it is made freely. It only works when it is freely given. And for some of you, that's your story. You know, you loved him, but she didn't love her. Or you loved her, but she didn't love you in return. You loved him, but he abused it. See, when love is forced, say you're sorry. When love is forced, it doesn't work. It doesn't work certainly for the long term. It doesn't work to bring about reconciliation to that relationship. Why? Because love only works when it is freely given. But it also means that love has a shadow side. Love has a shadow side. If you're free to love, then you're also free to hate. It's a choice you have. You have incredible power with the choices in your hand. If you're free to love, then you're also free to hate. In the same way you are free to give, you're also free to take. You're also free to steal. In the same way you have the capacity for good, you also have the capacity for enormous evil. And you know that, because you know why you know that? You wrestle with it every single day of your life. You wrestle through the choices that you make every single day of your life, and you wrestle with the consequences that your choices create every single day of your life. We know this, that we have incredible capacity to do good and to do evil. And so what's at the center of hatred and the stockpile of nuclear weapons and terroristic threats and bullying? Freedom. Freedom's at the center of it all. Do I push the button? Do I not push the button? Do I post that on social media? Do I not post that on social media? Do I allow those words to come out of my mouth or do I remain, keep them locked up? Do I fly that pain into that building or do I land it? Do I divorce? Do I not divorce? Do I forgive or do I hold a grudge? 
We all have freedom and we all make choices and every single choice we make has an effect. We all have this incredible capacity for good and for evil in us. And the same is true of our relationship with God. You know, he didn't create us as puppets. He didn't create us to, to be dangling from strings as he controls us and we go through life manipulated by his control. He didn't create us as robots to control and to program to love him. He does not insert quarters into our mouth every single day to say, you will love me. It's not your choice, but I am going to make you love me. He doesn't want to force you into a relationship with him. He wants an actual, genuine relationship with him. And if he wants an actual, genuine relationship with you, then guess what? It is going to require your free choice to be in an actual, genuine relationship with your heavenly father. And it is this love relationship so desired by God that prompted him to create creatures who would have the actual capacity to love him freely. But this also meant that we would have the actual capacity for horrible evil. So evil and suffering comes from the paradox free will creates and God's desire for an actual loving relationship. But here's what I find fascinating about all this, and maybe it's because I'm a pastor, and maybe it's because I follow Jesus, but it seems to me, in all the conversations I have with people, that it is the Christian God who is always on the hook for the evil and the suffering in the world. Do you guys, do you guys feel that? Do you guys feel that a little bit? I mean, why, I never hear anybody saying, why didn't Allah stop that horrible pain? Why doesn't Krishna come and do something about my pain and suffering? Why doesn't Buddha step in and alleviate this evil that's going on? Nobody ever says things like that, but they should. Because, my friends, and this is such an important part, you need, you need to understand this this morning, everybody has to deal with this issue. This is a everybody worldview. I don't care what worldview you associate with, I don't care what worldview you hold on to, you have to wrestle with this issue. This issue is just as true for you as it is of me, and it's just as true of your neighbor as it is for me, and it's just as true of the atheist as it is for me. Everybody has to wrestle with this issue of evil and suffering. So before we get to the Christian response of evil and suffering, I want to I present to you a few of the other alternatives, to the re, uh, a few of the other responses to, to this very complicated issue. Buddhism, for instance, would tell you that you need to transcend suffering through detachment. And so don't get close to anybody. Because when they die, then you're going to be hurt. And so if you don't want to be hurt, then just don't get close to anybody. Seems like a, a logical response, right? Just don't, just don't get close to anything. Don't love anything. Don't put your heart into anything. And then you won't feel hurt when it's broken or when it goes away. Kill desire, and you'll no longer long for anything. Now, that's okay if it's a house or a car or something tangible, right? But it also means that you cannot have a desire for a relationship or dreams or hopes or people, because you must kill it. And if you can do this su successfully, then you will enter into a state of non-existence, which is the ultimate hope of Buddhism. So that's one option. How about another? Islam. Now, Islam is very multifaceted. It's hard to narrow down exactly what all of Islam thinks, but this is a general understanding of what most uh, Muslims would believe about pain and suffering. You overcome suffering by submitting to the God who causes it and by detaching yourself from its effects. So God is actually the direct cause of all good and evil in the world. He is the one who 
um, pulls the strings and manipulates everybody. You actually don't have free will. Free will is an illusion. God is controlling everything. And so for some people, he has just chosen that you suffer. For other people, he has just chosen that you succeed and that you thrive. It's just the will of Allah. And we have no right or say to complain. It's just his will. Hinduism would tell us that suffering is karma. So you can't interfere. I mean, if, if you're suffering, it's just karma, right? You were bad, whether in this life or some previous existence, and now you are paying for all the bad things that you have done. What goes around comes around. You're just getting what you deserve, after all. Mark Clark, a pastor in Vancouver, tells the story of this time when he was in India, where Hinduism is, is the primary world religion. And all of these um, you know, peasants from the lower caste came up to his taxi cab and, and they're scratching at the windows and they're pounding on the windows hoping for food or for, for, um, for water or for some money. And so he reaches into his pocket and he begins to pull out some money and the taxi driver reaches back and he, says, and he slaps the money out of his hand and he says, no, you can't give these people money. They're suffering because they are paying for all the sins of their past life. And if you alleviate them from their suffering, if you help them, then they're going to have to relive this suffering in the next life. They're just getting what they deserve, and so you can't help them. They need to live through this suffering in order to get out of it. Judaism would tell us that we are to live by the covenant, and therefore we will receive the blessing. And so if you can follow the primarily Ten Commandments found in the Torah, then you will receive the blessing of God. As for all the arbitrary sufferings, because the, the, the Jews in the Old Testament looked at, looked at the world, and they, they recognized very easily that the, the, why are the evil prospering? Why, why are the evil the ones, the wicked people the ones who are thriving in this world? Why are we who are righteous the ones who are suffering? It doesn't make any sense. And they just said, well, pain and suffering just must be arbitrary, and so God is going to deal with it in the afterlife. He'll work it all out later, in other words. So I don't know, we, there's really no solution or answer to it. We just have to continue to trust that God will deal with it once we die. How about the New Age perspective? Positive thinking defeats negative reality. So my friends, just be happy. You know, will yourself up into positive mentality. Just think better thoughts about your life. Don't say the C word if you have cancer. Don't say the C word because that gives it power. That gives it power. Don't say the word because that gives it power. But come on, right? Positive thinking didn't make your breakup not happen. You know, positive thinking is not going to get you your job back. Positive thinking is not going to bring your child back from the dead. Positive thinking can help, granted. But it's not a response. It's not an answer. And lastly, naturalism or evolutionary theory. The premise is that we're random, right? There is no intelligent moral God behind anything. Everything happens on its own. We're just random mutations. That's all we are. We're just a bunch of random mutations. By default, there is no meaning or purpose to your suffering. There is no meaning or purpose to life, and so there certainly can't be any purpose or meaning to your suffering. But you can add to it. You can add to it if it'll help you survive. And so if the suffering of, of other people will help you with your life, then by all means, let them suffer. If what you do impacts other people negatively and they suffer because what you do, you should have absolutely no remorse for that because you are thriving and you are surviving. And after all, isn't that the point of it all? Survival of the fittest. You know, about 20 years ago, there was a woman named Melissa Drexler. She was 17 years old. Maybe you guys uh, remember this story, are familiar with it. Nobody knew that Melissa was nine months pregnant. Her boyfriend didn't know. Uh, her parents didn't know. Her best friends knew. She kept it a secret the entire pregnancy until the night of her senior prom. She shows up at her senior prom, and she goes into labor. She goes into the bathroom. She delivers this child in a bathroom stall. She looks at this child, and she says, oh, I, can't, I can't take care of this child. 
So she took the umbilical cord, wrapped it around its neck, strangled it to death, and threw it in the trash can. And then she walked away. She went back to the dance. She had a jolly good time dancing the night away with her friends. That was in 1997. Now, shortly after that, an MIT psychologist named Steven Pinker, he was a naturalist. He's an evolutionary theorist. He's an atheist. He wrote an article in the New York Times titled, Why They Kill Their Newborns. And he tried to explain why Melissa did what she did from an evolutionary and naturalistic viewpoint. Now, this is a defense of naturalism and says there are biological reasons why mothers kill their newborns, and we should have empathy for that, and we should understand that, and we should be okay with that. And the reason I tell you this is because I want you to understand where naturalistic thought will lead you, where naturalistic thought will take you if you follow it long enough. So I'm going to read this, this um, quote out of this article why, uh, titled, Why They Kill Their Newborns. Stephen Picker said this, it's hard to maintain that neonaticide is an illness because everyone was saying that Melissa was just ill, right? She, was, she, was, she had a mental disorder. She was just crazy, but no, he's, he's saying no. Uh, it's, it's hard to maintain that neonaticide is a mental illness. She wasn't crazy. She was just doing what people have done for generations. It's hard to maintain that it's an illness when they learn that it has been practiced and accepted in most cultures throughout history, and that's true. Their culture is for millennia who have done very similar things to what she did. In the, in the first century Roman world, if you didn't want your baby, then it was, it was a, by law, a Roman law, that you could just leave that baby next to the forest or, or next to the river. And you were leaving it up to its own destiny, to its own fate. That's all you were doing. You weren't killing the child. You were just leaving it up to its fate. So it wasn't an issue. So this has happened often. He's not lying when he says this. Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, both psychologists, argue that a capacity for neonaticide is built into the biological design of our parental emotions. This is normal. Mammals are extreme among animals in the amount of time, energy, and food they invest in their young. And humans are extreme among mammals. Yes, kids are an incredible investment, right? And they're even more of an investment as they get taller. You guys ever notice that? For those of you who have kids, like, like you're just, you're, the money you throw, the energy, everything just gets more and more and more as the kids grow up. But look at the bird life, right? The birds, like, they have five eggs, the eggs hatch, they kick them out of the nest, and only four survive. And they're like, hey, we lost one, but we have four, and that's great. So mammals are a little more, you know, extreme than the birds, and humans are even extreme on the mammalian side. Parenting investment is a limited resource, right? You only have so much time, so much money, so much energy. And mammalian mothers must decide whether to allot to their newborn or to their current future offspring. So he's saying that Melissa was actually acting perfectly logical. She's a 17-year-old. She looks at that baby. I can't, I can't afford you. I can't raise you. I have no resources to help you grow up as a child. And so it's perfectly logical what she did to wrap that umbilical cord around her neck, to tighten it up, to strangle that child and throw her in the trash can. Perfectly logical what she did. Makes perfect sense. Maybe someday she'll have another one and she'll be able to be a mother again. If a newborn is sickly or its survival is not promising, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter or try again later on. So this one looks sickly, this one looks weak, and so we'll just do away with them because we only have limited resources. Maybe one day we'll get pregnant again and we'll have another child and we're, we're in a better state in life and we'll be able to raise that child. To a biologist... Birth is an arbitrary a milestone as any other. So basically, you can't determine when a person becomes a person. Claiming that life begins when a person is born or at conception or at any other point is simply drawing a random line in the sand. Many mammals, he concludes, bear offspring that see and walk as soon as they hit the ground. The usual primate assembly spills into the first years in the world, and that complicates our definition of personhood. And so, guys, we can't blame Melissa 
We don't even know if that child was a person. Anybody revolted by this? Is anybody disturbed just a little bit by it all? But if there is no moral law, if there is no moral God, then he has a legitimate argument. If you are a naturalist or an atheist, you have no right to be disturbed by any of this. She's just doing what is best for her. That's natural selection. Survival of the fittest. She's just doing what is natural. So you cannot be angry if you're a naturalist or an evolutionist. We're just the product of evolutionary chance, so this should not bother us. But doesn't it bother us? And the reason it bothers you is because you're a moral person. And we'll talk more about that next week or in a few weeks. But here's the thing. These are all options on the table. You know, these are the major worldviews that people hold to about how to deal with evil and suffering in our day. And the reason we bring this up is because it's not just a Christian issue, right? This is not just a Christian problem. This is not something that only Christians need to answer. Everybody needs to answer it. So when your neighbor comes to you and says, hey, why does your God allow evil and suffering? Then ask them what their worldview is. Well, how do you understand it? And ask them if there's any hope in that worldview. Because here's my contention. The Christian response, which we'll get to in just a minute, is the only place where there's actually hope in the midst of your pain and your suffering. Here's the Christian response. Jesus answered suffering by embracing it. Now, when I became a father, a new kind of suffering was introduced to me, something that I never really had experienced before, and it was incredibly profound, as, as minimal as it was, but it was incredibly profound. So imagine holding your seven-month-old who is screaming and crying and writhing in pain and just flailing because she has no way to communicate exactly how she is feeling. There's no way to communicate the pain that she is feeling, you know, physically or whatever it may be. She is just screaming and crying and writhing, and you have no ability to anything about it. You guys ever been there before? These are parents? That's been, like, been my week the last week. But it's weird being a father in a situation like this, or it's weird being a mother in a situation, it's weird being a parent in a situation like this. You know love is true when you look upon someone and you wish that you could exchange your health and your happiness for their suffering and their pain. That's exactly how I felt. I felt that way with all four of my children. You know love is real when you wish that you could exchange your health and your happiness for their pain and their suffering. Now, most time, even if we're honest, right, this isn't the thought that comes into our mind when we experience people in pain. Most time we think, thank you, God, that I am not in their shoes. They're suffering. Oh, man, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not dealing with what they're dealing But explore the nature of love with me for a second. You look upon someone, and if you truly love them, isn't your first inclination, I wish that could be me? I wish I could give them my health in, 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 in place of their pain. Isn't that the nature of love? Not to thank God it's not you, but to plead with God that he would rather it be you? Now, most of the time, we don't even have this ability. Most of the time, this thought never even crosses our mind to willingly suffer because of love, but you have to understand this. This is so important. This is the constant mind of God. This is it. This is the constant mind of God. What we so often fail to understand is that suffering is a reflection of who God is. It is not simply something that he did. Yes, our need for saving was the occasion by which God came and he suffered 
on the cross, but it was not the reason by which he came and suffered. God suffers not as something in addition to his identity. He suffers not because as a response, you know, to a mistake that we made. He suffers because of his identity. He suffers because he is love. And doesn't love always suffer for the benefit of another? Isn't that the very identity and nature and definition of what true agape love is in Scripture? That love always gives so another might receive. Love always bends low so another might be lifted up. Love always dies so another might live. That is the very nature and definition of who God is. And so, of course, God is going to suffer. He didn't even have to hesitate when he saw us in pain. And so the question is, you know, where is God's goodness in the face of pain? Isn't that the age-old question? God, if you really loved me, then wouldn't you take this away? And the answer to that is, he is right here. He's in the middle of it. He may not be taking away, but you are not alone in it. He is in the middle of your pain and suffering alongside of us. You see, when the Old Testament described what the future Messiah would be like and, and what he would accomplish and how he would accomplish that, he basically said, Isaiah says that the Messiah was going to take all of the pain and all of the suffering in the world and he was going to consume it and suck it all into himself. Here's what he says. Surely he took up whose pain? Our pain. And he bore whose suffering? Our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He did not stand there and say, God, this isn't fair. God, this is unjust. I should not have to suffer for everybody else's sins and everybody else's pains. God, why? That wasn't his mentality, right? He was a loving father who desperately longed to take our suffering and take our pain and in exchange give us his life. By oppression and judgment, he has taken, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of his people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no no violence, nor was any deceit found on his mouth. So what did God do with your suffering? He sent his son to carry it. He sent his son to embrace it. And he didn't do so reluctantly. Like, he didn't have to hesitate. He, He simply saw our pain, and he ran into the midst of it so that he could carry it and take it away. Isn't this the mystery of a father's love? It's the mystery of a father's love. You know, Paul said this, that God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, that is, and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He was pleased? He found delight in taking our sin through the immense suffering that he did? That is the mystery of a father's love. Hebrews says, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The, 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 the joy? The joy set before him, the, the pleasure set before him, he endured the cross. That is the mystery of a father's love. And one I only know in such a minor part. Somehow to rejoice in seeing us healed and renewed was worth his suffering. That is the mystery of a father's love. And this is why I say God loves you. 
As simplistic of an answer as that my sound is the solution to both the intellectual and the emotional problem of evil. It's God's desire to be an actual love relationship with us. And it created this capacity for us to choose sin and pain and brokenness and death, yes, but God's love is also the means by which he came into it all to alleviate our pain by giving us healing and our, and our sin by forgiving us and our brokenness by putting us back together, by restoring us and by, you know, the, the death by inviting us into his life. I mean, you know, this still isn't probably an answer for why pain and suffering continue to exist. However, I think we know what the answer is not, right? The answer cannot be that God doesn't love us. My friends, please understand that. This may not give us an answer as to why all of these pains and sufferings exist, but it does convey to us so truthfully and so powerfully that it cannot be that God doesn't love us. And it cannot be that God is just indifferent to all of your pain. And it cannot be that God does not care for us. He takes all of the evil and suffering so seriously that he bore the cross to pave a way through the pain and suffering and into life. And this is the Christian hope. And you know what? Christianity is the only worldview that offers you hope in the middle of your pain and suffering. Every other worldview might have an idea about what to do with it, but nobody offers hope in the midst of it. See, Jesus Christ did not stay hanging on the cross or buried in the tomb. We talked about that last week. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to that message. He rose up proving that suffering and death would not have the final say. See, Jesus' resurrection after having suffered is the first fruit of something that will in time happen with all of us. So God is going to take all of the pain and reverse them all in time. The Greeks believed that, that history was just you know, concentric circles going round and round and round, and eventually, over time, the history would, you know, burn away and, and waste away into a giant configuration of, of fire. And through that, there would be new birth, and there would be new life, and there would be a, a restoration that took place. And so Jesus took this idea when he said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal, at the palingenesis, that whole idea of this you know, cyclical new birth that takes place of all of creation, at the palingenesis of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus is insisting that his return will be with such great power that the material world and the universe itself will be purged of all decay and all brokenness. And this is the hope that the resurrection provides us. Everything will be healed. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more mourning for all those things associated with the old order of life has been done away with. So the future that awaits us, that we all long for, it's not a consolation to the life you never had. The future that awaits us is a restoration of the life we've always wanted. And this means that every horrible thing that you've ever experienced and all the pain and all the suffering that you've ever happened to you, all the loss and all the heartache, it will not only be undone, it will not only be restored and repaired, but will in some way make our eventual joy greater. In the film version of the, the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Samwise Gamgee is talking to Frodo, his good friend Frodo. They're on a journey to throw that ring into Mount Doom and end, you know, all the chaos that's been taking place. And Frodo wants to give up at one point. He's like, what's the point? What's the point of going on? I don't want to go on. All the pain, all the horror that we've experienced, is it even worth it? And, and Samwise comes to his aid and he says, come on, we've got to keep going. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. 
Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad things had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. And this is the hope that Christianity holds out for each one of us. That somehow, when we see the greater glory, we're going to look back on all the pain and all the suffering that we endured, and we are going to have a more brilliant joy because of having gone through it all. Paul says it best when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I'm going to invite Emily forward, and we're going to sing one final song together as we conclude our service this morning. But, but here is, is what I want to ask you this morning, and here's what I want to leave you with and challenge you with. Here's what I believe about suffering, that suffering never leaves us spiritually neutral. And you guys know this, right? Because you've experienced suffering and you've experienced pain, but it never leaves us spiritually neutral. You're never the same after you suffer. You either move closer to God or you push God away and you move further away from him. There's never middle ground. There's never neutrality. We either move closer to God or we push him away. And some of you know the exact moment that you walked away. Some of you know the exact thing that happened to you that said, God, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to push you away. I'm going to keep you at arm length. I'm going to go figure out something else. You know the exact moment where you gave up on God because of that thing happened or that person died or, or that relationship ended or that job was lost or that plane crashed and you know what? You, balk, you backed off. You guys know the exact moment you did that. But what's your alternative? We talked about some alternatives. What is your alternative? That you're in a godless universe? That you're being punished? Maybe karma? That you're just getting what you deserve? There are alternatives, but the Christian hope is that the God who embraced suffering longs to embrace you. He longs to weep alongside you. He longs to come near to you in the midst of your pain and suffering and to provide you a way through it. Not out of it, but through it. And so, my friends, are you going to invite him in? That's your option this morning. That's, that's your challenge this morning. Are you going to invite him in? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your trial, are you going to invite him in? Are you going to keep him at arm's length? We're going to sing one final song together. It's a song that you're probably not familiar with, though some of you may be, so I'd encourage you just to reflect on the words. And that's all I ask you to do is just to reflect right now. Allow us to sink in just a little bit and ask yourself, God, is there a time in my life when I did push you away? When I convinced myself that there certainly cannot be a good God who cares for me because if there were, I wouldn't be going through this? Because you need to know the simple truth that there is a mystery of a father's love that is so profound and so complex that we cannot fully understand it. But what God's greatest desire is for you is to take your pain and your suffering and in exchange give you his life. And he has done so through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you can place your trust in that, you will find that there is hope on the other side of it. And so Jesus, we do thank you. We recognize, Father, that there are times in our life that we have pushed you away. And so many of us know the exact moment that we pushed you away. We know the exact thing that happened, that we said, God, no more. And, and I just pray that we might be a people who come back just a little bit today. That we come back to that center ground, Father, that, that, that there is no neutrality, right? There is no middle ground, but we would come back to trusting in you, Father. 
and we would come back to allowing you to embrace us, and we would come back to allowing you to take hold of us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our trial. We would just come back and allow you to do the work in us that you want us to do, Father. You put a, a vision of your cross and the vision of your suffering before us. And that we would know in the midst of that that we are not alone, but there is a Father's love that is so powerful and so profound that it embraces us in the midst of our suffering and trial. And in spite of everything that we continue to do and the choices that we make that continue to cause effects of, of pain and suffering for all of the world around us, Father, we keep doing this over and over again. I get it. I own that even in my own life. But even in the midst of all that, Father, you love us and you want to be near to us. And so I pray that we'd have greater trust this morning. Amen.